Hey, y'all. This is Jonathan Martin, and you are listening to the Zeitcast. Coming up next, we've got the Reverend Dr. Otis Moss III from Trinity United Church of Christ. We've got my dear friend, author, and activist Shane Claiborne. Very, very special conversations. I can't wait for you to overhear wherever you are, wherever you come from. All of you is welcome in this space. Let's go. Friends, it is so good to be back with you in this space. And I wanna jump right into things quickly. As promised, uh, there is a lot of content, a lot of episodes uh, that are coming your way uh, in consecutive days, as you'll see. I don't wanna give too much preface because this is an extra long episode and one that's very near and dear to my heart. I just wanna give a little bit of context. Uh, within my new role here at DePaul University, uh, working with our Center for Spiritual Life. The most um, uh, really remarkable event we do all year is our Mendenhall Lecture. And I don't know if I can quite explain to you the journey of how this one came into being, uh, how what is typically a lecture, more in the sense, and wonderful. I mean, uh, there have been unbelievable guests at this lecture long before I got here. People like Stanley Hauerwas, people like Krista Tippett, um, I know James K. Smith was here last year, but it's been a lecture typically in the format of kind of you introduce the speaker and hand them the microphone. And through a series of events that felt really providential, this snowballed into a whole other thing where our Prindle Institute for Ethics came on board, had the vision for turning this into two nights. Um, suddenly it kind of became a Black History Month event where we want to tell this larger story of um, faith and death and resistance and connect to a broader narrative. I really can't say now that it's been a couple weeks after the fact, of course, this was at the top of Black History Month here, and I know you're hearing this now, but just the kind of energy, momentum, I've really never seen anything quite like it. I, I don't want this to sound like hyperbole, I've never been part of an event in my life that was as meaningful to me. Um, there's a lot of talk of revival these days. And uh, I know I'm not a cynic about revival. I'm, you know, where I come from, I'm very open to the dynamic ways in which God's spirit is moving in the world. I do think that takes on radically different forms. And I will tell you, this has felt like and continues to feel like nothing less than a revival um, that is just as centered, that, um, is telling a coherent story, um, one that's not just about oppression or victimization, but one that is a story of faith and hope, hard-edged hope. And especially as someone who's been so shaped by Black church tradition and sitting at the feet of these luminaries for so long, having the opportunity to be able to introduce some of these voices directly to our campus and to see the way people responded, people from all faith traditions, no faith tradition. I don't know if this will translate in what you're about to hear in a recording. I, I can tell you the electricity in the room was so palpable and sensing things that are so holy um, had to keep the Reverend C.C. Jones Davis, my dear friend, singing at the beginning, because uh, what a way that started. So 
this is uncut, it's unedited. I wanted you to experience this, hopefully over headphones, which is always so intimate, right? Or riding on the road somewhere. The way we experienced the room as it was happening, uh, I can't imagine ever revisiting these conversations and not feeling like something's happening in that way that, uh, that it feels like God happens, that the spirit happens when people are in a room and something, uh, a presence shows up and th there's just something that takes place that feels like it's greater than the sum of the parts. This was, these two nights were really like that. And I'm still grappling with what that means for our campus, for myself. It was just really humbling, really beautiful. Um, Again, I hate it's been so long, but I hope you are going to feel your soul as stirred as mine has been uh, from hearing these conversations and the stuff that I'm about to release in the next few days that I'm so passionate about. Thank you for hanging around. Thank you for those of you who support us on Patreon so faithfully to make this happen. Uh, so grateful for each of you and um, for anybody who want to support us in that way. Uh, we're always grateful for anybody that can partner, but uh, you'll still get a full introduction from me for our guests. So I'm not going to do that now. We'll just roll right into the experience. And I hope that some of the things will wash over you that washed over us that night at Gobin United Methodist Church. Thanks again for being here for the Zeitcast.
Jones Davis and Steve Snyder. And to think the night is just getting started. <laughs> Good evening. My name is Marie Knudsen as University Chaplain and Associate Dean, and on behalf of the Center for Spiritual Life and the Prindle Institute for Ethics, it is my joy to welcome you to the 2023 Mendenhall Lectures at DePaul University. More than a century ago, Reverend Dr. Marmaduke H. Mendenhall endowed a lectureship at DePaul to address issues related to the academic dialogue concerning Christianity, bringing to campus persons of high and wide repute. This evening is no exception. Before I invite my colleague, Chaplain Jonathan Martin, to introduce this evening's guests, I want to thank Govin Church not only for opening their space, but also for giving of their time and talents in so many ways. This sort of work is an expression of Gobin's historic, present day, and I trust, future commitment to resist evil, injustice, and oppression in whatever forms they present themselves. I also want to briefly orient you to this space by pointing out four things. First, the clanging noises that you hear are a sign of the old building that we are in. So it's the radiator and the boiler working to keep us warm. Second, to the right of me is where you hopefully found coffee and cookies. Please feel free to enjoy those during the lecture. And through that hallway next to the refreshments is where you find the restrooms. To my left, you will see some tables what we at Gobin refer to as the playground. The playground is an interactive space. It's designed for children to engage in wonder, exploration, beauty, and creative play. And it is intentionally placed right up front because the point isn't to keep children from disrupting worship, but rather for grown-ups to learn from and to be led by the disruptions of the vulnerable. So please know that you are welcome to use that space. Whether you are a child or someone who finds that you are better able to listen and center 
when engaging tactile activities. Finally, behind me, you see a pulpit. We are on September 5th, 1960. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. spoke here to a group of Methodist ministers at what was known as the School for the Prophet. If a prophet names someone who sees and speaks truthfully, that is, someone who sees the world as it really is, yet can also imagine the world as it ought to be, and lives into the ways that it can become, then tonight, my friend, we are in the company of modern-day prophets. And I now invite my friend and colleague, Jonathan, to introduce us to them. Thank you, Chaplain Moran, and thank you so much for being here. Govan is truly an extraordinary place with an extraordinary history. I never come back here when I'm not thinking about that, Dr. King. September 5th, 1960, School of the Prophets. And I love um, the way Chaplain Moran invited us into the space because prophets do, in fact, don't live in denial. They describe the world for how it really is, honestly, but they also build bridges to the future with their words. And I do believe we have prophets in our midst tonight and tomorrow night as well. I don't think y'all knew you would walk into this. And that, the rumble of that wording just sounds like that's just heaven to me. And by the way, she'll be speaking to us uh, tomorrow night. But how about one of my best friends in the world, Reverend Cece Jones Davis? That was. She always thinks she's going to have and people didn't know that she does, that she does this. Um, tonight's a product of so many things. I'm so grateful to be part of a university and community that champions inclusion and belonging for everybody. And thank you for the leadership of Dr. White. Um, Marines are gaining spirituality. And this, again, Brian, this church that was inclusive in the early 1980s. Um, it's just uh, so many things that are converging here tonight. But we have a provocative premise. And then, I mean, it's, it's feels like kind of a wild thing to just put out there. Hey, we want to have a discussion about these intersections of how have certain ways of thinking about God and justice and uh, big ideas are actually killing people. And yet, out of the same, ostensibly, out of the people that read the same scriptures, the same texts, talk about the same God, uh, there's also a resistance movement. And this is, of course, Black History Month. And uh, this all turned out to be tonier than um, we would want it to be. And yet it just feels like so appropriate that we're talking about things we'll be talking about tonight. So I'm going to introduce our first speaker, Shane Claiborne. Shane, I almost need another set of hands just to bring more books up here. Um, <laughs> Shane Claiborne is, so the first time I heard Shane speak in person, I think it was in college, he's a couple years older than me and feels like an elder brother. Um, I can't think of a more authentic, radical Christian voice. Shane spent time with Mother Teresa in Calcutta 25 years ago this year, which is amazing. Kind of a simple way community in Philadelphia, truly a countercultural expression uh, in so many ways. Shane has written uh, many books that have influenced a lot of us. Probably one that people know best is The Irresistible Revolution, um, one that's especially pertinent to what we're talking about tonight, Executed Grace, How the Death Penalty Killed Jesus and Women's Killing Us. Um, 
Dan Allen of Book Study and Jesus for President with a group of guys in 2008. Um, beating guns, hopeful people who are weary of violence. And Shane, he, he and his wife have actually learned how to blacksmith and they literally beat guns and turn them into tools. Um, the Red Letter Revolution. Um, and one of the things I always tell me about Shane, not only is he one of the most <laughs> tender people that I know, but one of the things I love about you, Shane, so much is I feel like you sit at the feet of prophets and those influences converge, you synthesize that, but I feel like your unique gifting is challenging us and modeling for us what it means to be a practitioner. And that's part of what I love so much about what we're doing in Hall this year is I want to talk about the ideas, but we want to talk about living the ideas in real life. And I couldn't think of anyone who does that more humbly and more authentically than Shane than Claiborne. Thank you so much for being here. We'll say, but just before we I want to give a special plug for this. Shane has a new book out. It comes up Tuesday. So we have it here before Tuesday. So before anybody else says it in the world, Rethinking Life, Embracing the Sacredness of Every Person, uh, a gorgeous book, a gorgeous human being, would you join me in giving a warm welcome to Shane Claiborne? I'm so glad to be with you. It's an honor to be here uh, with such great friends, Reverend C.C. and uh, Reverend Otis Moss, who's finding his way after Sunday service in Chicago. We'll be here any minute. And uh, 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 Antoinette, a hero of mine. It's going to be a powerful couple of days. And I came out from Philadelphia, where I've called home for the last 25 years. But you can tell I grew up elsewhere. Uh, <laughs> In fact, um, I just, you know, I was down at the King Center for Dr. King holiday, and uh, uh, Dolly Parton was giving this award. We were getting these awards. It was a big honor to be down there. But uh, I thought, my uncle said, I remember when she used to play on the front steps. Uh, and grew up on the same hillside my grandparents did as Dolly Parton. That's where I found uh, I still have a piece of land there. It's called, literally, on the deed, it says, Old Hag Holland. Those are my people. And, uh, <laughs> and I have to say, like, that shaped me, you know, but when we talk about race, when we think about these things, like, we're, 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 where we sit determines what we see. And I, I fell in love with Jesus in East Tennessee, but I also began to sh be shaped by some of the residue of racism and, and of our history. Um, when I went to college uh, in Philadelphia, I put my high school yearbook on the shelf, CC, and uh, it had the Confederate flag in it. My friends were like, whoa, what's up with that? I was like, that's my high school yearbook. They're like, that's also not cool. You know? And like, we talked about it, and I began to see like how that little town in East Tennessee uh, uh, represents so much of our history that um, it, it's not a coincidence that we were still a segregated town that until two years ago, we had a statue of Nathan Bedford Forrest, the founder of the KKK in the capital of East Tennessee. And so I've been, as, as the scripture says, working out my salvation with fear and trembling. So I wrote the last two books uh, because I began to see that I knew what I'm saying I was pro-life. But I would really be more accurate to say that we were pro-birth because we had narrowed that down to one issue so uh, so powerfully that uh, on almost every other issue of life, we were on the wrong side of it. Uh, uh, you know, it's an irony that in the United States you can be pro-guns, pro-death penalty, pro-war, and still say you're pro-life as long as you've got a portion right. You know, and I began to see that in the moon 
life. That I, and I wanted to be a bigger champion for life. So uh, when we were writing Beating Guns, I found that the highest gun-owning demographic in America are Christians, evangelical Christians. We own guns at a higher rate than the general population. I don't always bear across this conspicuous, but this one's made out of the barrel of a gun. And we say in Philadelphia that uh, the, the cloth and the gun give you two very different versions of power. And one of them says, I'm willing to kill. The other says, I'm willing to die. Uh, this idea that we're to love our enemies, as Jesus said, stand stark in the face of this idea that we're going to stand, stand our ground or we're going to take out our enemies. So I began to wrestle with that. And then I looked at the death penalty. And I saw that the highest, the biggest supporters of the death penalty in America are Christians. We are the base of support for the death penalty. 95% of executions in the U.S. are in the Bible Belt. The Bible Belt is the death belt. It's states like Tennessee where we still have the electric chair and use it. Where Christians are most concentrated, where Christians are in power as governors and legislators, is where the death penalty has survived. It is a strange thing at the center of the Christian faith we have a victim of execution who subverted death to triumph over it, and yet if we're not careful, we miss the whole thing, right? And I think of, you know, as I grew up, I had all the Bible verses that I thought defended the death penalty. Ah, that it was, you know, I looked in Scripture and I saw the eye for eye, and so I, I want to say a little bit about that, but I want to start by saying that it can't be, we can't talk about the precious, preciousness of life without being honest about our history, right? That this, not only is it the Bible belt, but it's the states that held on to slavery the longest that continue to hold on to the death penalty. Exactly where lynchings were happening, a hundred years ago is where executions are happening today. And so I did decide, you know, I want to go back to the scripture and I want to look at it a little bit. And that's why I wrote this book, Rethinking Life, because I found out that the first place the word sin is used in the Bible, the first place it's used, is not in the Garden of Eden. We think about the, you know, the forbidden fruit, but it's actually in the inaugural murder of Cain killing his brother Abel. That's where the word sin is first used in Scripture. And that story goes on to say that the, the blood cries out to God from the ground. That it breaks God's heart to when we shed the blood of another person and, and we see that, that story of violence continuing to unfold to this day, right? Trayvon Martin should be turning 28 years old. Today, we see the, the legacy of violence in so many different manifestations. And so you start with Cain and Abel, but it's interesting because you think of the death penalty, you're like, but actually, God didn't kill Cain. There's consequences to murder, but God shows mercy. Cain's allowed to live. He's, he's punished, but he's also allowed to live and eventually allowed out of family and proceed. Uh, uh, grace gets the last word, you know, and you keep reading the story and you get to Moses, one of the heroes of our faith. But Moses killed a man in the book of Exodus and tried to bury him in the sin, right? And you're like, I didn't learn that in Sunday school. You know, I kept reading though, and I said, 
Moses was a murderer who was given a second chance. And then I kept reading and I got to David, who I learned in Sunday school was a man after God's own heart. On good days, I got to David and had some good days. I mean, in two Bible, he just ripped through every one of the Ten Commandments. He was sinning boldly, you know. He, he ends up doing so many things, but he, he has this affair. We were more likely, I think it's more accurate to say it was rape. Because he looks it out and he sees Bathsheba and he tells the men, go get her. And he rapes Bathsheba and then he ends up continuing to live into the lie as he has her husband, Uriah, killed in the battlefield. And by the way, you know, you know, you know, it did, I mean, when David did that, he already had like a dozen wives. I mean, the man was a womanizer. He had a problem, right? And yet he hears the rebuke of God and uh, comes to his friend Nathan, and he, and he, he has this time of repentance. He goes on to write so many of the songs, the biggest book in the Bible. And it's interesting because when you get to the Testament, it goes through the lineage that leads up to Jesus. And it goes, this was the son of the son of, we kind of skip over those sometimes, you know, it gets a little boring. But if you look close, it's powerful because it's, it gets to the Bathsheba thing. And it says, and then Solomon was born. Solomon was the son of David, but his mother was Uriah's wife. It's like, don't forget, that was messed up. But God is working through the cracks of everything, right? And so the lineage of Jesus had that murder, that that uh, uh, toxic uh, masculinity. I have that violence in it. And then you, you know, you keep reading, and you get to the story of uh, uh, Saul of Tarsus, who wrote half the New Testament, right? But by every definition, Saul was a religious extremist. Of the worst kind. He went door to door trying to torture and kill Christians. He oversaw the violent execution of the first martyr of the church, one man named Stephen. He gets so knocked out by the grace of God, he has this radical conversion. He goes from Saul to Paul, goes on to write. So I like to say, just for starters, that if we believe that a murderer is beyond redemption, we should just rip out half the Bible because it was written by him, right? The whole story would be a lot shorter without grace. The story of Scripture is a story about how God is good, even if we're not. That God's grace is bigger than our worst mistakes. So I like to start there because this goes to the very heart of our faith. You know, uh, folks say uh, someone who does these terrible things, they're sick. You can do sick. But my Savior said, I didn't come for the healthy. I came for the sick. I didn't come for the righteous, but for the sinners. That the whole story of God that is, 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 is whose love is bigger than our hatred, bigger than our racism, bigger than our, our violence. And so I, I love the Methodist statement. I, I grew up Methodist. And I, there's some things the Methodists are still figuring out. One thing they got right is the death penalty. And then the, the official statement of the Methodist church is that the death penalty denies the power of Jesus to redeem, restore, and transform every human being. It's a betrayal of the gospel. 
So, you know, I kept looking at Scripture and I go, because that's what we've got to do, I think, is counter bad theology with good theology. And part of what we're talking about this weekend, I know we're not all uh, probably Christian in this room. We probably come from lots of different streams of faith and no faith at all. But one of the things we've got to do is to counter the bad theology. The answer to bad theology is not no theology, but good theology, right? And I went back to some of the scriptures I had used to defend the death penalty. And I, I like an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, right? This is one of the most well-known Bible verses throughout the world and one of the most misused and misunderstood. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. It's, it's where we get the notion of retaliation. The ancient world is called lex talionis, where we get our idea of retaliation. And it allowed for reciprocal. <laughs> it was one way of thinking about justice. It was thousands of years old. And what it did was it allowed you to hurt the person back exactly how they had hurt you. But the intention of it was to limit violence. So it didn't continue to spiral out of control. So we might think an eye for an eye, no more. Right? You can only harm them back as much as they hurt you. If someone broke your arm, you can go break both their arms and burn down the house. You can hurt them exactly how they hurt me. This is where it's awesome. And they're beautiful that Jesus comes, right? And says, now you've heard it say, but I for an eye too for a twos. But Moses told you this, but I'm going to tell you this. And I've come to believe that Jesus was not the abolition of the law, but the, the fulfillment of it. He came to say, you know, uh, stopping the spiral of violence was a good start, but we're going to take it even further, right? We're going to say, you have the legal right to harm someone back. But that doesn't mean it's the best that we can do, right? Uh, we, we, uh, yeah, you know, I learned from my mom, two wrongs don't make a right. And uh, we don't, uh, if you poke my eye out, I don't think even in this room would think the best version of justice we can do is to gouge your eye out. We don't return harm for harm. We don't rape people who rape to try to show that rape is wrong. And yet, in the most extreme case of, of murder, we still hold that logic, right? That we can kill someone to show that killing is wrong. And at the end of the day, the cure is as bad as seeds, right? We end up mirroring the very violence that we want to heal the world of. It's also interesting because I, I looked at the Old Testament, you know, you think, oh, yeah, there's, you know, uh, there's the death penalty there, which you look a little closer, and capital murder was not the only death-worthy crime, right? Um, disrespecting your parents was a death-worthy crime. And the parents are saying amen a couple of them, you know, but the, the like sorcery, witchcraft was a death penalty crime in Scripture, and it was implemented in the United States. Because the scripture told us to. That was the same child. Or we had other things that were death-worthy crimes. Working on the Sabbath day was a death-worthy crime in scripture. I always say yeah. uh, everybody but Chick fil would be uh, in trouble on that one. Get my song this morning. Wait up for us to see him. Close down. I said, praise God. They're on in the Sabbath day. But anyway, you know, like working on Sabbath. Not many people say we need to bring the biblical death penalty back. Now, to be fair, my Jewish friend, my Catholic <laughs> friend, have taught me this. They said, listen to this. We made the criteria for carrying out an execution 
so prohibited that it never happened. There were dozens and dozens of things that would stop an execution from being carried out. And the rabbis of old said, this is one of the most conservative rabbi friends, said that the rabbis said, if we have more than one execution in 70 years, in two generations, there's something wrong with our society. And the death penalty is not the solution. And if I read my friend, he goes, that Jewish folks abolished the death penalty before the Christians. And it's y'all Christians that are misusing our Hebrew Bible to try to justify the death penalty. And then he goes, you got Jesus to reconcile it all with. How is it that the people who love Jesus are defending the death penalty? That we're on the wrong side of race when we look at our history. So many of our denominations, we have not consistently championed life. I think of, uh, you know, Jesus, that beautiful story in the scripture. There is a story of an execution, right, of a woman who was uh, caught in adultery and she's brought out before the town and she's humiliated. And it was a death-worthy crime. So the guys, they got their stones ready and they're ready to kill this woman. And Jesus interrupts the execution. He comes into the circle of those men and the first thing he does is dig in the dirt. It's weird, you know, like, but if you read the gospel, that's what it says he digs in the dirt. We were asking some of the kids, we were like, what do you think Jesus was digging in the dirt? And uh, one of the kids said, maybe he was writing, if this doesn't work, run, woman. <laughs> Somebody else said, maybe you wrote, where is the man? But he thinks, Do the thing. I don't know what he wrote in there, right? But what we do know is what. Next. And he said to all these men, with their stone ready to execute the woman, let the one who is without sin cast the first stone. And of course, he'll remind them, if you've called someone a fool, you've committed murder in your heart, if you've looked at someone with lust in your eyes, you've committed adultery too. The stones drop, the men walk away, and it's Jesus alone. And he says, where did they all go? But I love about that story, right? He says, yeah, I love it. Not only did Jesus humanize the woman, but he humanized the man. He, he brought the, uh, he disarmed that mob of men. And we see in that moment, the closer we are to God, the less we should want to throw stones at other people. The gospel is about uh, no one is beyond redemption. And no one's above reproach. So be careful if you get self-conscious, right? Be careful. I think of uh, this, this story of grace. It's, it's everywhere. And yet, how is it that we study the scripture and, and it still feels like we, we can justify unchristlike things? And this is where I've come to believe that proximity makes all the difference in the world. For some of us, proximity is not something you have to think about because these issues have chosen you because of the color of your skin or where you were born. Uh, uh, some people, have, the, the gun violence has chosen them, the death, the, the incarceration system has chosen them. And yet for others of us, I think that what Jesus and what our faith should invite us to do is to lean in to the pain of the world, right? to, just to get a little bit closer. And what happened to me was I started visiting on death row and it shook me up. I remember you know, meeting folks on death row, one of them in Tennessee, in Dumas, was convicted and sentenced to death in Tennessee. And he had not even been to the state of Tennessee. 
The, the first time he came to Tennessee was to defend himself in court against a crime that he was uh, accused of, and he was found guilty by an outright jury. It took him years, two decades, to show his innocence and to be released. He lost 20 years of his life. I think of my friend Derek Jameson, who was sentenced to death in Ohio, spent 20 years on death row, had six execution dates, was hours from his execution. Prison guards made him look at the electric chair and they said, you better get to know it because it's going to be your last hot day. Six, is right? Eventually they made the prosecution release all the evidence. And it proved Derek's innocent. Over 30 pieces of withheld evidence. They knew he was innocent and held him in jail for 20 years. He lost his mom while he was in jail. Followed his friends executed. And it, it transformed him. But he's a for, for love, then he's a party king the time. He says, I've seen too much hate done. I don't want to choose law every day. He's an abolitionist, but you think this is our system, right? This system where right now our statistic in America is that for every eight executions, there's one exoneration. Think about that. One person who is sentenced to die who proved their innocence. That's just the one that proved it. If every nine planes that took off, if one of them crashed, we'd be like, whoa, this is messed up. We, we got a problem with the system, right? And yet that's our track record. That's why a lot of conservative folks are going, we, we, got, we can't trust the system with the power of life and death. As our brother Brian Stevenson said, sometimes the question is not, does someone deserve to die, but do we deserve to kill? So I think of how how broken our system is. And there are people who I think are eminently dangerous. Dylan Roof, unrepentant, filled with hatred and racism. But we can protect people from killing them in the power of God's grace. I've learned from people like Reverend Sharon Rishon, from the families of the Emmanuel mind that say, oh, we got to believe that Jesus' love is bigger than Dylan Roof's hatred. we got to believe that God's love can transform even the heart of Do we believe, right? So it's that proximity that for me has changed everything. I got, I've, I've met people on death row that I, I know are guilty. They've told me what they did. Things that make me sick of my stomach. And yet I watched one of them as he was being executed. Week after week, try to heal the wounds of his family. The, the worst decision he ever made to kill his own wife. And finally, his daughter began to talk to him again. After 30 years without talking to him, they began to heal some of the wounds. And then he was given an execution day. And Donnie was going to, we prayed together right before he was executed and uh, he said, I want my last words to be honoring to God. And so as he was strapped into the garden, he sang, sing soon and very soon, I'm going to see the king. There's no more dying there. There's no more crying there. 
he forfeited his last meal so they would dedicate the money, the $19 for his last meal to the homeless shelter in Nashville would be the homeless. It's in the power of God's grace. One of the other guys I visited in Tennessee's death row, his name's KD. He, uh, he fell in love with Jesus and he uh, felt the call to ministry while he was on death row. And I got to be there for his, his ordination on death row. We're all standing around us, and we're all standing around, and the guards are looking in the wall, and he shares his testimony of what Jesus did in his life. He kneels on his knees, and they ordained him a pastor, and in his first act of ordination was the service hall communion. Oh, definitely. In Kevin Burns, this day, he's facing execution, the possibility of execution. So I think as we think about the value of life, as we think about the residue of racism and the violence, the, the blood that still ties up to God from the ground, the invitation for us, I think, is to say, what does it mean that at the center of our faith is one who put violence on display who absorbed all the, the violence unto himself in order to subvert it with love and forgiveness and an empty tomb. To join that James Cone and Howard Thurman said the disinherited, the crucified, the lynched peoples of the world and say, I'm with them. And so uh, we sometimes think that we're, we're um, we need the death penalty for the worst of the worst. But uh, Brother Brian Stevenson says, no, it's not the worst of the worst. It's the poorest of the poor. And it's disproportionately people of color. When you look at, when we went from lynching to uh, legal state executions in our country, in 1950, African-Americans were about 20% of our population, but they were 75% of our executions. Now we've come a little ways after marrying about 12, 13% of the population, but there's still half of death row and over a third of the executions. And what determines who actually gets executed is not the atrocity of the crime, but the resources of the defendant, the race of the victim. Uh, and so we look at the death penalty and you think Jeff Dahmer, he didn't get the death penalty. Charles Manson, death of the prison. Uh, Harvard educated Dan Kaczynski, the, the Unabomber, he's still alive. And I don't want him dead. I want a chance for mercy and grace, but I think it's time, it's way past time for us to abolish the death penalty and declare the goodness of God. Uh, even right here in Terre Haute, right? mm. we know Come this on. is where every federal execution takes place. Wow. There's been a movement saying Joe Biden's got a responsibility because his 1994 crime bill expanded the things that landed people on federal death row. Mm. And thank God he flipped. He's a, he's a, he's a death penalty abolitionist now, but he's actually still got some work to do because they haven't called for an end to the federal death penalty cases. And we're asking them, come to Terre Haute and tear that building down. Mm. Tear down the death chamber. It's designed for one purpose, to execute human beings. And it's time to tear it down. 
abolish and demolish. Come on, right? So I'm ready to come back into your whole reverend with a celebration party with a bulldozer when we can knock that thing down and say, we are going to stand on the right side of history because when, when I was born, y'all, most of the world still used the death penalty. Most of the world, over 100 countries. I just, I you know, out there, I'm 47 years old, but in that 47 years, almost all of the world has moved away from the death penalty. These are the countries that still use it. The United States is always in the top 10, used in the top five. China, Saudi Arabia, Iran, Iraq, and then the United States is right in the top five or 10. So we're on the wrong side of history. But I'm, I'm excited because when you look at the generations, young people are overwhelmingly a part of this movement, right? They were in the forefront of the, the, the movement to free uh, Julius Jones. They're in the movements that, uh, of Black Lives Matter and against gun violence. We got young people that are fed up with that, right? That are saying, we want to make sure that we declare that every life is sacred. We want to make sure that we declare that Native lives matter, that Black lives matter, that trans lives matter. We want to make sure that we affirm and celebrate the dignity of God. There's a scripture that talks about that. It says we're all body, one body with many parts, right? And then it says, but we miss it sometimes. You keep reading it, gets to the very end. It says, in the parts of the body that have been dishonored are given special honor. Hmm. My friend, Alexia Salatier, she said, that's God's affirmative action. <laughs> God giving special honor to the parts of the body that have been dishonored. So even as we were writing all men are created equal, we had folks that were owning slaves that wrote those documents. We had folks that were saying black folks are two-thirds human. We had in the Dred Scott case that uh, you know black folks don't have any rights that white people have to acknowledge. In our founding documents, we call Native American savages, but we got some work to do, right? To say that life is precious, because that blood still cries out to God from the ground. So I'm going to close um, by playing a little song from a uh, I can everywhere in my Bible to keep me proximate to what's at stake. I have all these little reminders. One of them is from one of the guys on death row that was taken off and says, just as I was writing you, I was moved off death row after 30 years. Listen to this. He says, I just walked on grass for the first time in 30 years. That's what we're doing to people. I just walked on grass for the first time in 30 years. I got this little Oregonian butterfly because my friend John Ramirez in Texas was facing execution. And I said, can I send you a prayer book? I don't know, maybe you could use some devotional. He said, so I got no prayer books. I love my reading every day. But I've been wanting to learn Oregonian. <laughs> Weeks before his execution, wanting to learn origami, CC. So I sent him an origami book, and he sent me right before he died a butterfly. And I have to say, this is a defiant sign. Mm. The state is about to kill him, but he's going to learn origami. And this song is by another one of my friends that's uh, on Tennessee's death row, Abu Ali. He's an incredible singer. And uh, we managed to capture, capture him singing uh, one week as we were closing our time together. Amazing Grace. Reverend Moss was just giving me some more depth to the song Amazing Grace. Uh, not only was it written by someone who was a former slaver, a slave trader, John Newton, um, whose 
conversion is very complicated, right? But the the, the music to the song, Urban Moss says, is very likely from the enslaved people on the ship. If you listen to the pentatonic of the way it was written, and so this is my friend Abu Ali, who's thankfully no longer facing execution, but he's still incarcerated, singing that song. Thank you, Shane. It's not every day you get to introduce your favorite preacher, and I need to do it quickly. Best I've got, no hyperbole. Everybody knows the Rolling Stones didn't invent rock and roll. They picked up blues riffs that they heard in clubs. Beatles didn't invent rock and roll. Tribe Called Quest didn't invent hip-hop. But there are those artists who come along every so often where the convergence of influences becomes a sound that you've never heard before. And in that same spirit, friends, the Reverend Dr. Otis Moss III did not invent preaching. But he is, he is in the pantheon of preaching on the level with all the artists I just mentioned. Um, Trinity United Church of Christ is one of our most countercultural radical witnesses I love to go there. I love that everywhere that you walk, that you see um, unashamedly black and unapologetically Christian, the particularity of that. His new book, Dancing the Darkness, Spiritual Lessons for Thriving in Turbulent Times, which I think at least 50 of you or so have already, which is amazing. Part of what I love about this, the gift that this book is, Pastor Moss, is that um, because my concern always is appropriate and much as I love like black history mothers, I know that these things can play. It's like, oh, well, this is like, this is something for black people. And part of what I love about this book and what you say here is that there's a spirituality here within the tradition that really is the hope of America. Uh, this book is a gift to all of us. I'll hope you, I hope you'll pick it up. And especially in, um, in times like these, I just can't a more prophetic figure. Um, I don't, I'm not trying to put any blame on you, Dr. Moss, but I do regularly refer to you as my pastor. 
and he certainly speaks into my own soul. What an amazing thing to have him here tonight speaking into all of our souls. Dr. Moss, we're so grateful to hear. Would you give Reverend Dr. Otis Moss III a warm welcome? First, I want to say thank you to, to my brother and to my friend, none other than Jonathan Martin. We, we thank you for, for your witness and your friendship uh, down through the years. The amazing work uh, that you do, not only here, uh, but across the country, uh, setting a table, uh, literally for us, to show that everyone is welcome at the table, uh, that the table that you have created is long enough and wide enough for every person of God to sit at. And no matter if you like gumbo or if you want to eat some sweet potato pie, they have room at the table, and we are grateful for your witness. I want to thank uh, none other than Shane Claiborne. He is a brother beloved, an absolute gift, not only to our civic society, uh, but to our spiritual community. Uh, the work that you do is deeply rooted in the gospel. And what you have done over the last several years is that I have met numerous people who have been renewed and regained their faith because you do something that ancient Christianity called us to do, that empire Christianity does not want to do. It's called embodiment, that you practice your spirituality, because there are a lot of people who preach about Jesus but won't preach what Jesus preached. And so we are grateful for your witness and your work. And to our, our prophet, our bishop, none other than Reverend Cece, we thank you for the work that you have been doing. You are a shining light in this nation. You are a fierce sister of faith and a beloved theological light that gives us not only hope, but also comforts our heart because of your witness and your work. I want to give a major shout out to none other than Reverend Prophet Jones, who will be with you tomorrow. And I know that you will be blessed by her amazing testimony and her witness. Now, I don't want to get in trouble. I don't want to get in trouble, Brooklyn. I don't want to get in trouble, um, Brooklyn. Um, and the reason I don't want to get in trouble, Brooklyn, is because I talk with your grandmother, Brooklyn. Uh, she told me to tell you hello. She'd already texted me and whatnot. But, but Brooklyn grew up at Trinity United Church of Christ. She is a student here at DePaul, just a tremendous young lady. And I will tell your grandma, I saw you and we have to take a selfie. She already told me, is she there? I want you to know that I talked with your, you know how she is. I mean, her grand, yeah, that's right. I got the note. I got the note. So I just want you to know, I have an assignment. You have an assignment. I don't want to get in trouble with your grandma. You have to understand her grandma. You could do not want to get in trouble with her grandmother. All right. 
And so we are going, if you'd see us in the corner taking a bunch of pictures, we have sent at least six to her grandmother to let her know that we are present here on this day. I also want to thank uh, Brother Allen, who uh, drove me down uh, here from uh, Chicago. We did not realize that there was a time change and we would have been here earlier. Like, wait a minute, y'all not on Central Time? Uh, <laughs> amen, amen. And so uh, he got us here rather quickly, so I'm praying. No, how? Alan did that, man. I, I fell asleep. I woke up and here we are. I was like, wait a minute. I thought it was a three hour drive. The Holy Ghost is right. The Holy Ghost is right. And so we give God praise and we are just grateful. I would like at this moment, if we just could just, just bow our heads in a word of prayer at this moment uh, as we contemplate what, uh, what we are called in this moment to, uh, to meditate on. Search us, O God, and know our hearts. Try us and see if there is any destructive way in us. When you discover what does not belong, remove it, cast it into the sea of forgetfulness. As far as the east is from the west, that it may never return again. Let the words of our mouths and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight. Lord, you are our strength and you are our redeemer. Holy Spirit, do thy will. Do thy will, Holy Spirit, do thy will, Holy Spirit. We offer this prayer in the mighty and wonderful name, the liberating, salvific, healing, compassionate, justice-fused name of Jesus who is the Christ, and the people of God who gather in this space, who seek to see justice lived out in this civic arena we call the yet-to-be states of America, may simply say, amen. Amen. It was an amazing poet uh, by the name of Anita Scott Coleman, I believe it was in 1938. She was a contemporary of Langston Hughes. She was an Afro-Mexican sister who eventually resided in New Mexico as she made her way from Mexico to New Mexico and eventually was a part of the Harlem Renaissance. And she tried to paint a poetic picture, what she called a portraiture, of what it means to be a person of African descent in a country that does not fully see your humanity. This poem, I, I offer this as we begin today, and a slight remix to update from 1938 to our 21st century language. She says, Black men are the tall trees that remain standing in a forest after a fire. Flame strips their branches, flame sears their limbs, yet stand these trees, for their roots are thrust deep in the heart of the earth. Black men are the tall trees that remain standing in a forest after a fire. Black women, are the tall trees 
that remains standing in a forest after a fire. Flame strips their branches, flame sears their limbs, yet stand these trees, for their roots are thrust deep in the heart of the earth. Black women are the tall trees that remain standing in a forest after a fire. Black people are the tall trees that remain standing in a forest after a fire. America strips their branches, America sears their limbs, yet stands these trees, for their roots are thrust deep in the heart of the earth. Black people are the tall trees that remain standing in a forest after a fire. Anita Scott Coleman, 1938. During that time period, uh, was raising a question, what does it mean to be, to be United States of America, to quote W.E.B. Du Bois. And as I contemplated uh, our gathering on today and the subject matter, to be in this space here where Dr. King offered an address on in this space, to be in this space and where a person by the name of Vernon Jordan offered his words in this space. And he heard as a young man for the first time, Howard Thurman here in this space, he told me. So what, as I contemplated, I thought about Dr. King's open letter that he wrote to America. It was Paul's open letter to Christian churches. And as I contemplated and prayed, I, I thought about what, what would an open letter look like if it was written by Micah? If Micah raised the question as he did in the ancient tradition, what does the Lord require of you to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with God? And so I would just ask that you would journey with me for a moment that we deal with this idea of an open letter to a church in love with empire. An open letter to a church in love with empire. What does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with God found upon the ancient parchment in the dusty corners of my own imagination, I discovered, Reverend C.C., an, an unpublished letter by the poet we will call Prophet Jonathan, named Micah, through the prophetic powers of the Holy Spirit and the strange action of what uh, those who are science nerds call quantum entanglement, my sanctified imagination was able to find an unpublished communique to the people of God. The letter from internal examination was crafted to be heard by the ecclesiastical and political elite, along with the marginalized uh, who yearn to be free in the experiment called democracy, who now live within the fragile and possibility of a declining empire called America. The poet 
gathering all of his prophetic and spiritual powers, renders this epistle for those of us who wander the wilderness of this present age. If I might offer some background on this poet, this poet by the name of Micah, he has a sparse resume, but it gives us some indication that he was a person acquainted with the blue notes played by people caught in the shadow of an empire distant from moral imagination and suspicious of courage gathered by internal resources. Micah's ancestral home was destroyed by the Assyrian Empire, forcing his family to flee. They settled in the holy city of Jerusalem. He was proud to be in this great and holy city, the holy city, this city of Zion. As Micah grew, he found out that his beloved city was infected by inept political and religious leadership. The people elected uh, to represent and lead spent their time trying to impress and emulate the narrative and uh, narcissistic behavior of Assyrian leaders who claimed, if you follow us, we can make Jerusalem great again. If I may blow the dust off this letter and read to you what the prophet has penned for a church infatuated with empire, it reads as follows. Beloved of God, I write this letter in hopes that my Afro-Hebraic ancestry and heritage might offer an insight to this nation that struggles to be born. As I once uttered uh, to the ancestral children of Israel, I speak to you. What does the Lord require of you who occupy space in these not yet United States of America? Will the Lord be pleased by your market celebrations of golden calves named Dow Jones and NASDAQ? Will your offering, uh, the offering to tax the poor to relieve the rich cause God to smile? Will the disparity in incarceration among poor and people of color cause God to clap God's hands or your privatization of prisons, do you think that causes angels to sing? This is the question before your nation. What does the Lord require? To do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Through my prophetic vision and quantum entanglement, I hear the voices of poets in your nation who speak to the hypocrisy of your nation's words and deeds. There is a young man in your nation I believe now he calls himself Yasembe, used to go by most deaf. That one time as he was spitting some lyrics, he said, my country tis of thee, sweet land of robbery. Or it was that great poet by the name of W.E.B. Du Bois who said, America, home of the thief, land of the slave. That there is a schizophrenic nature present in your civic soul. You speak of freedom, you shout liberty, but you practice civic malfeasance. You refuse to teach the totality of your history. You shun your blues and make it a crime in some circles to teach the true nature of your nation's birth. Your nation, if I may tell the truth, your nation was born civically 
1776. But economically and spiritually, its soul was shaped in 1619. This nation must come to grips with the contradiction of its origin story. The founding fathers spoke with clarity of the noble virtues of liberty. These educated men who leaned on stoic philosophy could not suffer to live a life of taxation without representation. They believed rebellion was a logical, spiritual, and pragmatic choice when a man's freedom was removed. How ironic. A nation built on stolen land and enriched by stolen labor would offer the words, give me liberty or give me death as a clarion call for common sense. As a poet forced to be a prophet, I, I must speak these words. If this nation called America is to survive, what does the Lord require of you? The answer comes back with three words and four syllables to do justice. To do justice. This may seem a simple phrase, but your nation has failed often to grasp the meaning because phonetically policymakers have subconsciously mispronounced the word and allowed a double entendre every time they speak the word justice in civic discourse. Because they're saying just us instead of saying justice. If you are to practice justice, a proper pronunciation and renouncing of the system has hindered human flourishing must end. What does the Lord require to do justice? The path to do justice is through the garden of truth telling your system of mass incarceration cannot end until truth-telling becomes the norm. So you rise up, you poets, rise up preachers, rise up artists, rise up creators, lovers of God, filmmakers, teachers, laborers, mothers, big mamas, those in rural areas, urban centers, suburban, whether you are hillbilly or trap city, it does not matter. You have to rise up. The forefront of this movement must be the willingness to speak a truth that will set all of God's people free. Truth. The truth is chattel slavery and mass incarceration are siblings born in different eras, but produced by the same parent that when economic greed and white supremacy decide to get married, they always produce slavery and incarceration. For with economic profitability, always comes next political viability. And then after political viability, according to my father, there will always be theological acceptance. Because theology or spirituality in this country has become, in the words of Dr. King, the taillight and not the headlight. That whenever economics go first, then politicians will come behind economics and find a way to make the economy flourish. And then they bring in the bishops to pardon everything. The unholy trinity that serves this system is a truth we must ref we refuse to admit. Economics built it. Politics accepted it. 
and theology pardoned it. The system was and is driven by the market and found a spouse in the racialized imagination called white supremacy. This is not a Christian nation. This is a capitalistic nation that likes wearing ecclesiastical garments. What does the Lord require? Justice is not possible without truth tellers. The story of uh, this country and of incarceration must begin by understanding that when four million people who'd been kissed by nature's son were released into this country as freed men and women, that those four million, million began to flourish. They had skills. They were the ones who actually set this nation moving forward. They knew agriculture and design and architecture. As a matter of fact, if you go down south and you see something in Charleston, uh, South Carolina, known as a French port, it's in a house that doesn't need AC. You need to thank some black folk who figured out to use the African meeting house design, knowing that hot air goes up. And if you open the windows accordingly, you'll get a breeze that will come from the sea. Ah, these people of genius. But the states rights movement because of a president by the name of Andrew Johnson, that he wanted to ensure that the planters, the plantation owners, would have their land back. We know it as the backlash of Reconstruction. Land went back to those former landowners. <clears throat> and then as a result, they ended up making sure that they added in what we call the Bill of Rights, these amendments, that some people think that the 13th Amendment abolished slavery. But please read the whole thing. Neither slavery nor involuntary servitude in this country, except, except as a punishment. It became a function in a way for those uh, Southern plantation owners to regain control. Black codes were then instituted where literally two or three people who gather in a particular space, it was illegal that you needed to have papers and people do not even know that 500,000 black people were re-enslaved after slavery in what was known as the peonage movement. Their labor was sold and outsourced. If I was walking down the street and I did not have my papers, I would then be arrested, placed before a judge, and they would tell me, for the next nine years, you have to work your debt off, son. And my debt uh, would then be placed in the hands of a company, like a steel company from Birmingham that rebuilt Birmingham, or might be sold to a company in South Carolina, 500000 This becomes the legacy of this nation. But I know that there are those up north who think that we didn't have anything to do with any of this. It was just people who were below the Mason Dixon line, wherever that is. According to Malcolm X, uh, everything is south if you are in America. You just got to go to Canada if you want to move out of the south. But if you look even at spaces such as University of Chicago, Harvard, Dartmouth, and Princeton, it was ebony labor that allowed the Ivy Leagues to become Ivy League. 
This was a part of this legacy to do justice. We must be truth tellers. Justice must be rooted in redemption, not retribution. Redemption over retribution. This means that we believe in the possibility of every human being, that the mark of the sacred is upon every single human being, as Shane has already stated. This idea of having a death penalty, especially within a system we know that kills people of color, whether or not they are guilty or not. Should we be the ones to snuff out the life of one who has the imprint of the divine upon them. And it's strange that people who claim to love Jesus are usually the ones saying, lock them up. We've got to do an eye for an eye. Now, isn't it strange that when you look at the biblical record, most of the patriarchs are suspect and should have been thrown in jail. Noah was a drunk and got drunk on the eve of reconstruction. Abraham was a pimp and tried to pimp his own wife and sell her to someone who was an Egyptian. Moses was a convicted murderer. Jacob was a con man and was involved with grand larceny. And David, don't let me start with David. David just has issues across the board. Peter should have been on assault charges because he was the thug of the Bible. Because anytime someone rolled up on Jesus wrong, he pulled out a knife and cut off their ear. And then Jesus is on the cross, hanging between King James Version malefactors. Another translation, thieves. OM3 translation, thugs. One thug is talking about Jesus. Another thug is talking to Jesus. And one thug says, please, when you get to your when I get in paradise, I'm not sure, I do not know who is in heaven. I don't know if Noah's in heaven. I don't know if Abraham's in heaven. I have no idea if Jacob is in heaven. I really have no understanding if Moses is there or Samson or David or Isaiah or Matthew or Peter or Paul. I don't know if any of them are heaven, but I do know there's a thug in heaven. And if there's a thug in heaven, then heaven must be a gangster's paradise. Redemption over retribution. We treat, in the words of Brian Stevenson, rich, a rich person who is guilty better than an innocent poor person. If you are to heed this word, we must dare walk humbly with our God. This is the most difficult task for a nation that speaks of its greatness and uses the language of being the greatest or exceptional. How can you walk humbly when you walking around talking so arrogantly? How can you walk humbly with your God in the fact when you believe that you are greater than all and have no blemishes? This is why the faith you claim is difficult for you to comprehend because humility and hubris cannot occupy the same space together. 
You see, uh, one must understand that humility is not humiliation. Humility sets us free to do what is important in the space that God calls us to walk, to walk humbly with God, to let notions go of the ego. Humility removes the space uh, for isms and counters this work so that God can work. Walk humbly with God so the oppressed may go free. Walk humbly with God so that we may end the school to prison pipeline. Walk humbly with God so that private prisons may be abolished and a part of history and not a part of the now. Walk humbly with God. Get rid of the cash bail system, which is a tax upon the poor. Walk humbly with God. Let us abolish juvenile detention centers. Walk humbly with God. Let's move to restorative justice instead of expelling students. Walk humbly with God. Let us get rid of the death penalty. We raise questions that we have not done enough and I say to you as I close as a poet at this moment what does the Lord require to do justice to love mercy to walk humbly with our God signed Micah poet called prophet ancestor and resident of heaven who is still looking down God bless you. Thank you so much, Shane Claiborne, Reverend Moss the third. Thank you so much. We do have a couple minutes for questions. I will remind you that we only have a, a short time, but our guests will be available afterwards for a little bit. Um, Shane has books that are available for purchase and has agreed uh, to sign them as well. So uh, if you have a question, Joel is going to help us uh, with a microphone. If you want to slip up your hand, We'll invite our guests to join us up front if you would uh, do so. Perfect. I'm going to pass this to you if you want to both join us up front. And if you have a question, slip up your hand and Joel will find you. I'm going to hand this to you, Judith Pass. Joel is ready with the microphone. Yes, a question in the back. I'd like to know what restores your soul. That's my question. <laughs> uh, a lot of things. One of them is uh, beating on assault rifles. Uh, <laughs> We, we, we get guns off our streets and both my wife and I are, um, literally beating guns into garden tools and crosses and things. And honestly, it, it is transcendent. It's, it's beautiful. It's holy. It's a way that I can channel all my <laughs> frustration. Um, I also find being in community with people whose hope is alive, whose joy is real. Uh, that keeps me, I, I think we can't tend to, uh, 
rub off on each other. So if you if you hang out with a lot of folks whose hope is um, struggling and who are uh, cynical, I, th- I think it brings us down. So I, I try to hang out with folks who believe despite the evidence, you know, and have a joy that can uh, be resilient even in, in these troubled times. So, uh, yeah. For me, music, poetry, movies, good food, nature, and great conversation with people who know how to laugh. There's something Cornell West said, laughter and the Holy Spirit are connected because you can't control it. Mm. And he said, it's the same way when you when you have a good laugh, it does something to your your body. And when you're around people that can really just drop a great joke and are naturally funny, not trying to be funny, it it really does something uh, to to your spirit. Other questions? Yes. Hi, um, this is more directed towards uh, Reverend Moss, but you're both welcome to answer. Um, I was just wondering how you kind of reconcile people using Christianity or using God in the effort to hurt people of color in this country or around the world, uh, specifically African Americans and slavery or other types of ways. How do you, how are you able to kind of hold your vision of God in still the same way? Well, I'm very clear that the practice of Christianity that is practiced, especially in America, has never really been practiced. That the practice that we witness, I mean, I I just did a message today called The Gospel According to Frederick Douglass. And Frederick Douglass was very clear. He said, your Christianity is a sham. It is not Christian. It is not rooted in Christ at all. And we have seen over and over again that people will utilize, especially when they're influenced by the market, uh, Christianity as a trinket. And if it's not Christianity, it will be something else because there is a proclivity in humanity to move toward these peculiar hierarchies when we are not rooted in something deeper than that which is materialism. And America. And I heard Dr. King say it, and along with, um, I'm trying to think, it was Dr. King and James Orange, uh, he stated this, Christianity has never been practiced in America. And it's interesting, those on the margins, and that's what I think is beautiful about black spirituality, those on the margins have been demonstrating in this country what this faith tradition is. Cornel West says there is empire Christianity, And then there is that which is Jesus-centered Christianity. Which do you follow, the empire or Jesus? For me, I'm with Jesus. And just because I'm a movie nerd, that's the way I see it. We're the rebel alliance for those who know Star Wars. We're not the empire. So I'm just looking for a few Jedi who want to do some work against those who represent the empire. Other questions? Yeah. 
Okay, so my con- question would be, how did you understand your purpose that God implemented in your life? I feel like the biggest struggle I'm finding is, how do I understand what God has made me for, and how do I follow that in the best way when worldly temptations are all around us and we live in a capitalist society where you have to work for money to stay alive? How did you figure out what your purpose was, and how do you implement it every day? Wonderful question. Um, Shane, you want to start that one? You want to do it? Okay. All right. Thanks. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So one of the things I'm a big, big, and I big proponent of Howard Thurman and Howard Thurman talks about this idea of the inner life and developing the inner life and that the steps that you take when you are listening to the inner life, you will not discover truly the synchronicity and sacred serendipity of the spirit, maybe not 30, 40, or 50 years later. But you got to risk, because faith and risk are the same thing, that you've got to risk taking the steps in that inner life. And Thurman says it this way. He says he then, toward the end of his life, then could see the hand of God, what he could not see in the middle of his life. You have to listen to that inner voice. And if enough people, you don't have to have them all. If there's a cadre, a remnant who listen to the inner life, the world can be turned upside down. The freedom movement at its height, at its height, were 1,500 organizers. Now, we love to look at these large pictures of people at the mall in Washington. They weren't the organizers. They just showed up for the show. But the organizers, 1,500 people, changed the literal social landscape of America. And if you talk to Fannie Lou Hamer, She will say, though I never made it past the fifth grade, there was a voice in me that called me to do the work that I was called to do. Listen to that voice and not the noise around you. Amen. Yeah. I I do think that there's a place that we can feel the spirit call us towards there's other things i think that we don't have to wait on the spirit to call us towards like uh welcoming the homeless or visiting folks in prison or taking care of refugees or you know being with people that are sick so i think there's some things that we just know this is a part of what love and compassion compels us to do so i think that's where i i also started going i know this is the right thing to do right i know this is where god is and 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 then I think the fun of it is when Frederick Beekner says, we've got to take our deepest passions and connect them to the world's deepest pain. When our skills, our unique gifts connect to the story of liberation and freedom, then we, the question is not, am I going to be a scientist or a doctor or uh a school teacher, but what kind of scientist yeah. or doctor yes. or plumber or school teacher am I going to be? How do I use my gifts for the bigger story of what God's doing? So, yeah. Friends, will you join me in thanking our guests this evening? Thank you. Thank you both so much. Thank you.
As the band comes forward to send us off, I want to remind you that tomorrow night we continue with Reverend Jones Davis and Antoinette Jones, an incredible evening tomorrow night that will encourage and challenge and inspire you. And I hope to see you there again tomorrow night at seven o'clock. Please let us offer our guests one more round of applause and gratitude. Thank you. Thank you so much. We hope to see you here tomorrow night at seven o'clock. And until then, let your light shine. That's your cue, Joel. <laughs> let it shine. Let it shine.
he's throwing our movies. See you all tomorrow night, 7 p.m. here in Complete Church. Thank you.